Well, if you have a Bible today, Exodus chapter 21 through 24 is where we're going to be today. We're continuing this series through the book of Exodus. And so far in the story, we've seen that God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's judged their oppressors through the plagues. He's delivered them, uh, the people through the Red Sea and judged their oppressors once and for all at the Red Sea. And he's led them to this mountain where he's given them the Ten Commandments. And that's where we're picking up the story today. This is normally the part of the story, the part of the book, where I stop reading. Um, It's like, so far, the first part of Exodus is like the movie, and these are the credits, you know? And you just can flip it off after this point. Um, What we're about to read uh, is very strange. Um, And... So if, if you were just to sit down and start reading Exodus 21, 22, 23, um, chances are high that you would be confused. Chances are high that you would maybe be embarrassed. If you're a Christian, um, you already maybe feel kind of weird about the fact that you follow Jesus and that makes you, you know, there are all kinds of things that you believe and, and do because you're a follower of Jesus that that are weird to people around you. Um, But the people that you already feel kind of insecure about, like, man, I'm a Christian and I I know, they don't even know that these verses are in the Bible. And if they did, you would have even more reason to feel embarrassed. So as you read, you're like, oh my gosh, it actually says that in here. Um, If you read this, you sit down and read it, chances are also high that uh, maybe you would be offended. Um, Maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're here, you're, you're just curious and you're, you're exploring things. Maybe these are actually some of the passages of the Bible that give you reason not to follow Jesus because it's offensive, some of the things that are said and some of the topics that come up. And um, it just seems pretty, pretty out there that God would say things like this and require things like this. And that makes you not want to follow him. I think that is normal. Um, And then maybe if you just sat down and started reading this stuff, like you would actually like to feel confused or embarrassed or offended, but you're just so bored as soon as you start reading this stuff that you couldn't even get any of those emotions um, because you just, just, it's just, it's tough to make it through this stuff. It's like reading closely the credits of the movie. Um, And I think all of those responses to reading this text are understandable. Um, This was written over 3,000 years ago. Their culture is vastly different from our culture. Um, It's it's completely normal, I think, to feel any of those feelings. But just because we may feel that way as we approach these passages— doesn't mean that these passages don't have something to teach us. We can still learn something from these passages, even though they're confusing and embarrassing and offensive and boring at times. And so why are we looking at these? What's the point of these passages? And why should we expect to learn something from them? 
2 Timothy chapter 3, this is like a foundational verse for um, understanding the Bible. Here's what uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says. And you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, referring to the Old Testament, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. These verses teach us that every single part of the Old Testament, all scripture, points to Jesus. It is able to give us some wisdom that should lead us to trust Jesus more. And all of scripture, every part of the Old Testament is useful for teaching. And we believe that. And that's one of the reasons that we preach through books of the Bible here. Because when we chose to do the book of Exodus, we were believing there's something here for us to learn that will point us to trust in Jesus and that will help us live our lives. And so we believe that not just about the cool, exciting passages that we've already read, but we also believe that about these passages. So all scripture is useful for teaching. These passages test me as a preacher how much I believe that. Because when you script out the series, we could just skip over certain sections and nobody knows because it's like, oh, I I guess we finished Exodus already. Um, And that would be the end of it but all scripture is useful for teaching. In these laws, as confusing as they may be, here's the main thing that we can take away from them. God calls his people to act justly. God calls his people to act justly. God is a God of justice and he wants his people to live justly. God, when he redeems people by his grace, wants them to live rightly. God's generosity towards us should cause us to be just. So this text, even though it's confusing, embarrassing, offensive, and boring, has something to teach us about justice. But while all of that's true, there's also a distinction that we need to make um, before we jump in. And that is this, that what was given as the law to the nation of Israel and they were obligated to obey is different for us. The way that the nation of Israel who first received these laws, the way that they were supposed to apply this law is different from how we're supposed to apply this law. The New Testament says that we are not under this law. That means we're not obligated to obey the details of this law. Uh, Paul says that in Romans chapter six, he says, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. He says this in the book of Galatians, really Galatians three, four, and five are all about that. But Galatians five, he says, we're not under the law, but we're led by the spirit. In Hebrews chapter eight, verse 13, it actually says that the old covenant, referring to these laws, the old covenant has been made obsolete because of the new covenant. So these laws in some sense are obsolete. They don't apply to us. And yet, in another sense, all of these laws are still useful for us. So, how are we supposed to read and understand these laws if we're not obligated to obey all of the details because we're part of a new covenant? 
If we're not supposed to obey all the details, then how are we supposed to read and learn from these laws? Let me share just a few helpful uh, principles for reading the Old Testament law that I hope uh, will be useful to you. Um, Several months ago, there was actually a group of people in our church who were doing a Bible study, and they were looking at some of the laws, and they were like, what in the world? And this is the same stuff that I shared with them when they had questions, all right? Um, Historically, Christians have divided the laws into three groups of laws, moral laws, ceremonial laws, and judicial or civil laws. So moral laws are things that you keep obeying because they're just moral principles that you're supposed to live by. Ceremonial laws are things like, here's what priests are supposed to do, and here's what you're supposed to do before you make a sacrifice. And those, the ceremonial laws for the Christian, we understand that they were pointing to Jesus and they've been completed by Jesus. And so we don't have to obey those anymore. And then the civil or the judicial laws are laws that the nation of Israel was supposed to operate under as a nation because God rescued them out of slavery and he was taking them to the promised land where they would establish like a real nation with real government and real laws. And so there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament that are judicial or civil. And we don't have to obey those because you don't live in the nation of Israel and uh, they don't apply to you anymore. Um, So historically, that's how Christians, um, that's one way that Christians have tried to think about the different laws. And that's helpful, but it's not perfect. Um, The reason it's not perfect is because for one thing, the Bible itself doesn't make that distinction. So it's not like you're reading along and, you know, Moses is like, and here are the ceremonial laws, parentheses, someday you guys won't have to obey these. Um, He doesn't do that. So you're just reading along and it's a helpful observation that, okay, this is a ceremonial law. We don't have to obey that, but it's not, it's not perfect. Okay. Because as you're reading, it's not always clear where a law fits into those three categories. So even though that's a helpful uh, distinction, it's not perfect. Um, Something that uh, my professor from seminary, um, Jan Verbruggen, who is just a brilliant guy, something that he shared with me that I found very helpful um, is this. If a law is repeated in the New Testament, we obey it. So if you find a law and it's repeated in the New Testament as a law, then you obey it. If it's not repeated, then we ask, is there a principle that still applies? And if there is, then we still live by that principle. And in all of that, we remember that the law is fulfilled in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So whatever the law might mean, ultimately, it's pointing us to do those two things, to love God and to love our neighbor. So hopefully those principles can be beneficial to you as Uh, You read the law for yourself and as we jump into it today. So today, we're not going to be able to look at every single detail in Exodus 21 through 24 because there are a lot of details and that would be way longer of a sermon than you would want to sit through Um, and that I would want to preach, frankly. Um, So instead, what we're going to do is try to get an overview of some of these laws, okay? And so we're going to have a simple outline to help us as we think through these laws. So here's the simple outline. There's, we're going to have 
two sets of three, all right? We're going to talk about three principles that we need to understand, and then we're going to look at three uh, principles about justice. So three big things we need to understand, and then three things about justice, okay, that we learn from these laws. So first, three big picture comments about these laws in Exodus 21 through 23. And I got these from a pastor named Bobby Jameson in a sermon that he did on this passage that I thought was really helpful. Here's the first one. These laws are primarily for the community, not the world. These laws are primarily for the community, not the world. And that means the application of these laws, as we think about what principles there might be for us today, the primary place of application needs to be God's community, the church, not the world. Um, The way we get that in the text, where we see that, is if you'll look in Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. Those are instructions about how the people are to worship God. It gives instructions about uh, the kind of altar that they're supposed to build in worship. And then the way that this section ends is Exodus 23, verses 13 through 19. It again gives instructions about how the people are supposed to worship and remember what God has done for them. So here's the point. These judgments or ordinances or laws that are given in Exodus 21, 22, and 23 are bookended before and at the end by instruction for worship and instruction about how to remember what God has done for the people. That means these are laws that are given within the context of a relationship that has already been established by grace. The first matter of justice is worship. And who worships God? His community that he's redeemed. So um, the primary application then of these laws is to the church as we think about them today, not the whole world. Um, Here's an example of that, okay? Um, In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's this weird situation that happens in this church that was in the Greek city called Corinth. And here was the situation. There was a man who was having an affair and it was creating all kinds of drama in the church. And that still happens today, um, that when people have affairs, it creates drama. And so that's what was happening. But the problem is he was refusing to stop the affair and he was refusing to admit that what he was doing was wrong. And so here's what Paul says. He's writing to the church and he says, look, you guys need to exclude him from membership in your church. You need to put him outside of membership in your church because he's refusing to live by the covenant, the standards of the community. He's refusing to live the way that a follower of Jesus should live. And so put him out of membership. But here's what's interesting. When he says, put, him, put the man out of membership, then he quotes from the law. And where he quotes is from the book of Deuteronomy. And he quotes a section of the law where a person who was caught in idolatry was supposed to be stoned to death. Paul quotes from a law for Israel that said the person needs to be put to death and he applies it to the church, not to the world, but to the church and says, put him out of membership. 
Do you see how he didn't carry it over with a one for one? Like, well, they were supposed to kill him. So I guess you guys need to kill him. Didn't say that. Instead, he applies the principle and he doesn't apply it to the whole world. He applies it to the church. So that's the first big picture comment is these laws are primarily for the community, not the world. Here's the second. These laws are like a net, not a ceiling. These laws are like a net, not a ceiling. These laws are not seeking to create a utopia on the earth. It's not like it's a ceiling where God's like, this is what everything is going to be perfect if you will do this. It's not a ceiling. It's not a utopia. Instead, it's a net. Uh, These laws are intended to prevent the Israelites from falling deeper and deeper into sin. That's what we mean. So these laws assume that it's a fallen, corrupt world. And they don't assume that these laws are going to fix that. The world will not be fixed, the Old Testament believes, until the Messiah comes. The purpose of the laws are not to make a utopia or to fix the world. The the purpose of the laws are to be like a net that catch us from falling deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. They're intended to stop the spread of corruption, to stop the world from trending downward and downward and downward. Um, And so here's an example of this. Um, In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking with uh, some people and the people are saying, look, it's perfectly fine to get divorced because it says in the law that you can get divorced. Why would Moses have given a law talking about divorce if divorce was bad? And Jesus responds and says, the reason that Moses gave that law is because he knew that people have hard hearts. That is, they break their faithfulness. They break the covenants and the vows that they take in marriage. And God was giving some stipulations for what to do when that happens. But then Jesus appeals to creation before the law was given. And he says, this is not how it was from the beginning. God's purpose, God's vision, God's hope is not for divorce. God's hope, God's vision is for people to stay committed to one another in marriage. So that means that when God gives certain stipulations in the law, we should not read that as an endorsement of sin. This is not a ceiling that's trying to describe what the perfect world looks like. Instead, it's a net that's intended to catch us from drifting downward into more and more corruption and sin. Does that make sense? So just because something's mentioned doesn't mean it's an endorsement of that thing. And then here's the third big picture comment. These laws are examples. They're not exhaustive. They're examples. They're not exhaustive. Here's what I mean by that. The purpose of these laws is to provide principles for how to apply the Ten Commandments to real life. So the Ten Commandments are pretty clear cut. It's like, do this, don't do this. These laws are unpacking what the Ten Commandments would actually look like in real life. It's applying the Ten Commandments to real life. And so they're just examples of how to live out the Ten Commandments. Um, Look at, just notice this little detail. Um, In chapter 21, starting in verse 2, all the way through chapter 22, verse 17. Notice that the way that each one of these laws starts 
is with one of two words, either if or when, if or when. And here's the reason for that. The purpose of these laws from 21 verse 1 to 22 verse 17, uh, or 20, yeah, 22 verse 17. Uh, the purpose of these laws is to say, look, the Ten Commandments say this, but what if this happens? The Ten Commandments say this, but when somebody does this, what are we supposed to do? So the purpose of these laws is to help us apply the Ten Commandments. And then after 22 verse 17, starting in 22 verse 18, it literally just starts unpacking the Ten Commandments. It just starts giving real life examples of what to do if the Ten Commandments are violated. So the goal in giving the people, the the nation of Israel, the law, was that Israelite judges would be able to read the law and Israelite people would be able to read the law and they would be able to form principles about how to apply the Ten Commandments to real life. So the goal is not that every single case that could possibly be determined would be covered. The goal is to provide some examples so that you could begin to derive principles for real life. And this is still how the Bible works today. The Bible doesn't cover, should you take this job or not? The Bible doesn't cover, should you move to X and Y city? Instead, we're supposed to read God's word, gain wisdom that we would then be able to apply and think about how we should live in the real world. Pastor Bobby Jameson says this, a crucial part of biblical wisdom is being able to apply God's word to situations that God's word does not specifically address. That means finding precedent, finding principles, making analogies. So those are three big picture comments about reading these laws. Um, They're primarily for the community, not the world. They're like a net, not a ceiling. They're examples, they're not exhaustive. And the bottom line in all of this is God is giving these laws because God is calling his people to act justly, okay? So now, what can we learn about justice from these laws? I wanna share three principles of justice that we learn from these laws. Here's the first one. Justice protects the vulnerable. Justice protects the vulnerable. In chapter 21, verse 2, above the verse in my Bible, there's a little heading. My guess is there's a heading in your Bible too. Mine says, laws about slaves. Yours probably says something similar. It's important to know that these little headings in the Bible are something that Bible people put in. They're not what the authors originally had. So they're not part of the original text. Um, And this little passage that deals with slaves, um, I think that the word slave is a bit misleading of a translation. Um, The word, the Hebrew word, uh, is translated most times as servant in the Old Testament. And it refers to anyone who's subject to another person's authority. So anyone who's subject to another person's authority, this word is used for various times throughout the Bible. So keep that in mind as we read um, Exodus chapter 21. We're going to read verses 2 through 6, okay? 
When you buy a Hebrew servant, I'm just going to translate it that way. He is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. Verse four, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. Verse five, but if the servant declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man. His master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master will pierce his ear with an awl and he will serve his master for life. So let's talk about uh, these verses. The word, I think I said, is better translated as servant. And the idea that's being practiced here is different, I think, than what we typically think of as slavery in our context. It's more like indentured servitude. Um, the point is that if someone fell into poverty and they weren't able to, to live or survive, or they had a debt that they owed that was too large, that rather than just be destitute, they could go and work for this person for six years and this person would provide them with a place to stay, a, place, a, a means to make money, um, they would provide them with food and clothes. And this person would essentially have a place to go and serve and work while they were um, coming out of their impoverished, impoverished situation and they wouldn't have to be destitute. Um, a lot of commentators made this analogy and I thought this was interesting. The closest modern analogy that we have for this is maybe the military. Um, you sign away a lot of your freedom to be in the military. You do it for a term of service. Um, while you are under strict authority, you still also have legal rights and protections. Um, the military provides housing and other amenities for those who are serving. And it's proven to be a path out of poverty for many people to join the military. Um, so servitude is radically different from slavery as we understand it or as we think of it today. And let me give you four reasons why from the text. First, this servitude is time limited. It's time limited. So we see that in verse two, you serve for six years and then on the seventh year, you go free. And the part that seems really hard for us uh, in verses five and six about, um, okay, let's say there's somebody who's serving but while he's a servant, he gets married and has kids, and then his time runs out. Uh, why do they have to stay with the master? And the thinking is that when this uh, servant entered the household as a servant, he was under he, he understood the obligation that he had to serve for six years, and so he was also he made the choice to get married and to have these kids while he was still in that service. And because these servants are also under the same six-year rule, it's not that they're going to be there forever with their master and that he's going to have to leave them and like God is trying to split the family. The point is he's got to understand that when he got married, 
the woman that he married has to finish her six years because that's what she originally committed to. And their children have to stay with the mom. The goal is to keep the, the kid with the mom. And so that's the thinking behind this. Now, if the servant decided, you know what? We actually like it here and it actually works well for us, which happened. Uh, there's a few examples of that in the Bible where the servant actually becomes part of the family and inherits a lot of the stuff. Um, if that were to happen, then they would have this sign where you basically get your ears pierced. And that's a sign that, okay, I'm committing to continue to live with you and serve you for life. So the, what's happening is not like the splitting up of families and like dad has to go move across the country somewhere and is never allowed to see the servant kids anymore or the servant wife. Uh, what's happening is um, there's uh, justice being provided to make sure that the six years happens as everybody agreed to. That's the goal, I think, of that. But uh, first big reason why this is different from slavery, there is uh, a time limit on it. Um, here's a second. The law prohibits kidnapping people and selling them into slavery. So look at chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. So this little verse prohibits three things. It prohibits the kidnapper from taking someone. It prohibits anyone um, selling that kidnapped person into, into slavery. And it prohibits anyone buying that kidnapped person. All three of those would be guilty under this law. The person who kidnapped them, the person who sold them, and the person who bought them. All are guilty and are to be put to death, it says. So, um, that's the second big reason that this is different from slavery as we understand it. Here's a third. If the master ever injured the servant, the servant went free. So look at chapter 21, verse 26. So big number 21, little number 26. When a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his eye. Verse 27, if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his tooth. If you are a master and you abuse your servant, you don't get to be the master anymore. That's a third way that this is different from slavery as we understand it. And then here's a fourth. Runaway servants are not to be returned to their masters. We get this in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. So if you ran away for whatever reason, because that could potentially put you in a dangerous situation to return, you weren't to be returned. So the transatlantic slave trade blatantly disobeyed and disregarded the principles in these verses. They were not the same thing. The ancient, the ancient Israelites were not slave owners as we understand it today, nor does the Mosaic law endorse slavery. Let me summarize this with a quote from one commentator. What's the point of all these laws regarding servitude? To protect the vulnerable. There are certainly difficult details, but the overall thrust is to protect those who are at the low end of the economic scale and who could easily be mistreated. Servitude in Israel was a social safety net. These laws are to make sure that the net holds and to make sure that the net is also something that can set people on their feet again. 
So what do we learn about justice? We learn that justice is intended to protect the vulnerable. We see that with the stipulations regulating servitude. If you have questions about that, we kind of just scratched the surface of that. But if you have questions about that, I would be happy to talk with you more about that. We also see, though, lots of other examples in these laws of the vulnerable needing to be protected. Um, Look at Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 24. You must not exploit a resident alien or oppress him since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. So immigrants are to be treated with dignity and justice. Look at verse 22. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. Verse 24. My anger will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. Now, we could talk about that. There's a lot of uh, wisdom in some of these principles, but what God is saying, bottom line, is that he cares about immigrants, he cares about widows, and he cares about orphans. And he intends to protect them in his community. So as we think about these laws that protect the vulnerable, how should we think about applying that today? Well, remember, the primary place of application is the community, not the world. And so, as Christians, here are some things that I think we should do in light of these verses. These are just some ideas. We should be humble enough to ask ourselves if our beliefs about immigration and our attitude towards immigrants are more shaped by a political platform or the Bible. Now, this passage does not spell out the way in which we are to think about immigration laws in the United States or in any country, except for the nation of Israel that Moses was establishing. But the principle is that you should care about people who are immigrants. And the reason is because immigrants are particularly vulnerable. And so as Christians, there's lots of freedom to debate policy. But our attitude and our heart should always be one of kindness, love, and of giving dignity to immigrants. I think that as a result of these laws, we should all seriously pray about how we could support adoption and foster care. And we should examine if our reasons for not doing so are more informed by the Bible or by worldliness. We should support, pray for, and enter vocations like nursing, social work, law enforcement, and the justice system because these fields can be a means of working for justice. These are just a few ideas of how Christians can apply some of these laws. So, That's the first big principle about these laws and about justice. Justice protects the vulnerable. Here's the second. Justice holds the unrighteous accountable. Justice holds the unrighteous accountable. Look at chapter 21, verse 12. Whoever strikes a person so that he dies must be put to death. 
Look at verse 15. Whoever strikes his father or his mother must be put to death. Verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother must be put to death. The point is not that capital punishment has to be present today. The point, as we apply it today, is that in a community of justice, people pay, people are held accountable when they break the law. In the church, we should be a community of accountability to where when people wrong someone, when people are living in sin, we should be a community of justice where people are held accountable for that. Um, Look at chapter 22, verse 7. Believe it or not, not every single violation of the law warranted capital punishment. (laughs) Um, When a man gives his neighbor valuables or goods to keep, but they are stolen from that person's house, the thief, if caught, must repay double. Look at chapter 22, verse 14. When a man borrows an animal from his neighbor and it is injured or dies while its owner is not there with it, the man must make full restitution. These are just a few examples, and there are a ton of them, that show in the law that justice means that the unrighteous are held accountable. When someone breaks the law, they should be held responsible for doing so. Here's the third principle of justice that I think we we learn from these laws. Justice is gracious and reasonable. Justice is gracious and reasonable. Look at chapter 21, uh, verse 23 through 25. These are some of the more famous verses. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. Is this teaching that if you do something wrong, that same wrong thing needs to be done to you as justice? Is that the point of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, bruise for bruise? Or is this saying what we call that is maiming? That if you lash someone, you get lashed. If you beat someone, you get beaten. Is that what this is saying? I don't think so. The point here is not identical retribution. The point is proportional justice. The severity of the punishment should fit the severity of the crime. That's the point. Um, And we see that actually in the very next verse that we already looked at. When a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his eye. Well, there's the immediate application of what was just said, eye for eye. So if your eye was gouged out, it's not that, okay, well, the servant just then gouges out the eye of the master. It's that, well, now you don't get to be the servant. You don't have to be the servant of this man anymore. So the idea is that there should be proportional justice. We see this in several places. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. When a man steals an ox or a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay five cattle for the ox or four sheep for the sheep. 
What's the point of that? So somebody steals an ox from you, they owe you five oxen for five cattle. But if they steal a sheep, they only have to give you four back. (laughs) What's the point of that? Well, an oxen is worth, an ox is the right way to say that. An ox is worth more than a sheep. Your oxen in this culture are like your heavy machinery on the farm. And so to steal one of those is gonna cost you way more than if just one of your sheep goes missing. And so because of that, you should get more in return. And that's the same principle as eye for eye and tooth for tooth. The crime should match the punishment. The punishment should match the crime. Look at uh, chapter 22, verses two through four. This is also kind of interesting. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he is beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. So if you're in your house, somebody breaks in and you're caught by surprise and in the process of you defending yourself, you beat them and they die, you're not guilty of bloodshed. Unless, verse four or verse three, but if this happens after sunrise, the householder is guilty of bloodshed. So if it happens during the daytime, you are guilty. What's the difference? Well, this is an example of the reasonableness of the law. It's that, well, wait a minute. It's kind of a different scenario. If you're asleep, you can't see anything. There's no electricity. You're asleep. Somebody breaks into your house. You don't know what's going on. And in the response to that, the person ends up dying. That's different than you're sitting down for lunch and somebody crawls into your house and you've got lots of time to think and react and then the person dies as you respond. There are all kinds of other ways that you could potentially respond in the daytime is the thinking. So it's not like super rigid, like this is exactly, it's think about the principle is the point. And so an Israelite judge would be able to read this and think, okay, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The crime, the punishment should fit the crime. And so let's think about what's happened. Let's be reasonable with the punishment. That's the point. There's also a graciousness in justice. Look at Exodus 22, verse 25. If you lend silver to my people, to the poor person among you, you must not be like a creditor to him. You must not charge him interest. Now that's a bad business practice. God says though, it's just. For his community, you're not trying to take advantage of people. You're not trying to exploit people. You're not trying to get wealthy off of their poverty. That's the point. Look at verses 26 and 27. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as collateral, so if they owe you and they can't pay right now, so you just take their cloak as collateral until they can pay, return it to him before sunset. For it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am gracious. Do you see how even justice is intended to be gracious? It's not just about rights, it's about love. This is why Philippians 4 verse 5 says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Look at this, um, Exodus 23 verse 4. If you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. Verse five, 
If you see the donkey of someone who hates you lying helpless under its load and you want to refrain from helping it, you must help with it. What's the point? You hate this guy. He hates you. He cheated you out of an ox, maybe. He stole your ox. And then later you see his ox being crushed by the weight. It's helpless. It's going to be left there. You got to help. And if in your little heart you go, I don't really want to help, you got to do it anyway. It's literally what it says. So justice has a graciousness to it. This is why when Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, look, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to complete it. He's not just heightening the law because the law was this really bad thing and it had all these rules, but now Jesus shows up and it's like, well, we care about the heart. The law cared about the heart. This is why Jesus says, when he says, look, if somebody slaps your face, turn the other cheek. The point is, fulfill the spirit of the law. Have a graciousness towards you. You're not trying to just get back at this person, but in your heart, have the graciousness and the reasonableness that I have. So God's people were to build a society of justice that would be a light to the nations. This society would be marked by a justice that protects the vulnerable. It'd be marked by a justice that holds unrighteous people accountable. And it would be marked by a justice that's gracious and reasonable. And if they were faithful to do this, God says that he will bless them. And you can read this in Exodus 23, verse 20 through 33. This is God saying, if you will keep my covenant things are going to go well for you. You'll get to live in the land and you'll be blessed in the land. These promises of God, that if they obey, things will go well. They were sealed with blood. This covenant was sealed with blood. And these are the verses that we had read earlier. The people hear everything that was read. Moses read out these laws to the people and the people responded and said, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded us. Moses builds an altar. He, he kills a bull. He takes the blood and he, he splatters it on the altar. And then the people say again, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded us to do. And then look at chapter 24, verse 8. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Now, apart from reminding you of Dexter or some kind of weird, gory movie, what's the point in all of this blood splatter? The point is that they are making a covenant here. And they are saying, if we do not keep this law, then what happened to that bull will happen to us. We're committing to that. This blood being sprayed on us is a reminder that we will pay with our lives if we break this covenant. How are we to understand that today? The book of Hebrews helps us out with this. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author says, 
For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words. What is he talking about? He's talking about how in Exodus 19, the Israelites come up to the mountain. He's talking about this passage. He says, you've not come to that. Those who heard that trumpet, that blast, begged that not another word would be spoken to them for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned, was the instructions. Remember that from last week. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. The author says, you have not come to that mountain, a mountain that can be touched. But he says, instead, you have come to Mount Zion. And, verse 24, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? The writer of Hebrews is saying, the blood that was splattered on the nation of Israel, it was like the blood of Abel. In Genesis chapter four, Abel gets killed by his brother. And as his blood is spilled out on the ground, it says that his blood called out to the Lord. It's this personification of blood. The blood was calling out to the Lord for vengeance, for justice. And that's the same kind of blood that was being sprayed on the Israelites. If you do not keep this law, there will be justice. You will pay. There will be vengeance. The writer of Hebrews says, but we have not come to a mountain that can be touched. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And this covenant's blood says something much better than that. Here's what the blood of this covenant says. It cries out not for vengeance, but for grace. The blood of this covenant is not on us to pay. The blood of this covenant is on a much better sacrifice than a bull or a goat. The blood of this covenant is in the blood of Jesus. The reason that Jesus goes to the cross and sheds his blood, the reason that we sing songs about his blood is because his blood was shed to free us from the old covenant. His blood was shed so that we could go free from our sins. His blood was shed. Jesus died on the cross so that people who are unjust like us could stand before a holy God justified by trusting in Jesus and what he accomplished in his death and his resurrection. We can enter into a new covenant with God where we can stand before him holy without blemish, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus, just like the Israelites had this blood of the covenant and then they sat down and they ate a meal, starting in verse nine. Jesus also gives us blood for the covenant and invites us to God's table for a meal. When you came in today, you should have received one of these little meals. 
If you can open these without getting frustrated, <laughs> go ahead and begin to do so. We'll take it together in just a minute. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the new covenant. The bread represents the body of Jesus. Jesus, who is truly God, left heaven and took on flesh and dwelled among us. And when he had come, he went to the cross and he shed his blood. And his blood says to us that because of what I have done for you, you can go free. You can be forgiven of your sins. So as we prepare to take this, would you take a moment? Would you confess your sins to the Lord? And now would you thank him for not making you pay, but providing a substitute to pay in your place. As we eat this, we are reminding ourselves and the people around us that it is only because of Jesus that we can be saved. It is only by receiving Jesus, eating Jesus, taking and eating him in faith that we can be made right with God. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me? We're going to respond to God now by singing about how Jesus and his death and resurrection alone can give us confidence.